I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a lot of rhymes with Johnny. Hello and welcome back, or uh, welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre. Here's the second part of my chat with the great Ethan Hawke. I'm so grateful to Ethan for giving me the time and for speaking so brilliantly about this subject. We talk about all sorts of things in this second part. His first acting experience on stage when he was 12, 13, how... That job meant that he had to skip Wednesday school to go off and do George Bernard Shaw, like most 12 or 13-year-olds. How he was waiting, how he's always sort of waiting for his father to watch him on stage. Who Paul Schofield was performing for, who makes Tom Stoppard (laughs) nervous. What helped Ethan Hawke and Bobby Cannavale get it up for a show when they're both exhausted. What was the high watermark of Ethan's happiness? His aspirations and his dreams for acting with his daughter, the brilliant Maya Hawke. And more discussion of his book, which I really can't recommend enough as as a real atomization of what acting in the theatre is like. Bright Ray of Darkness. It's terrific. He's terrific. I just could not have enjoyed our conversation more. Okay, so the first time you ever went to the theatre and you, it, uh, uh, at least the first act of an original play came out of it, when was the first time, do you remember the first time you were on stage? Oh, for sure, yeah. That was at McCarter Theatre, St. Joan. Stacey Ray was playing the lead role and Nigel Jackson was directing. And it was incredible. I mean... The best part of it was rehearsal. I mean, I, I liked being on stage. That was really fun. And that, that was a, a high. I had, look, I was Dunois' page. And at one point, Dunois, the knight, and St. Joan are talking. And the wind changes. And, you know, uh, and I wake up from a nap and sneeze and say, look, a kingfisher. And then Dunois notices that the wind has changed. And it means the battle's on and everything's going to go. You would be a great Dunois, by the way. But the real thrill was watching adults sit in a basement of what did feel like a cathedral. I mean, the Carter Theater is really big and really beautiful, and it has a cathedral feeling to it. And we're in the basement, and these people are spending the afternoon talking about whether there's a God, what is sainthood, they're talking about George Bernard Shaw and the politics of that day and how it intersects with the politics of this day. And they're talking about movement 
and grace and beauty. And there's flute players and a drummer and I got armor. And I was like, this is a job. You know, like this is somebody's job. And simultaneously, I don't think my parents would be hurt at all. My parents hated their job. Hmm. They're working for the weekend, baby. And they got home and they were so tired. And their job was so minorly interesting. It's a great exaggeration of the psychic space their work took up. And I just thought, I don't, I don't want a job. You know, I want to do what Stacy Ray is doing. And so it was a wonderful first experience mm. because it was with um, really dedicated professionals who were artisans and serious and dedicated to their craft and really not famous. Right. There was none of that. Right. Steven Snetzer was playing Don Juan. You know, I mean, he was a big shot. He was on General Hospital or right. something, you, right. you know, but I mean, it wasn't like right. he was embarrassed about being on General Hospital, you, you know, and I thought it was kind of cool. How old were you? 13. 13. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, 12, really. I turned 13 while Gosh, we were doing did it. did you really? Yeah. Were, were you a family? Were you mom or dad? Did they take you to the theater much? Were you, were you theater goers? As, no. As my a- mom took me to Annie, but we were living in Georgia then. Right. And so that was a, a rarity. Interestingly enough, my father really does like Shakespeare. He's a mathematician. Oh. So he doesn't have a high regard for most plays. Right. But the math... Of Shakespeare. Oh, interesting. You know, the math, the, yeah. the, the logic, the, the puzzling yes. that Shakespeare does is yeah. so. It is like an equation. Sometimes it, it, an equation. It, it of really is. Feeling. And when, and he's the type of mind that notices, like, that's interesting. Both those speeches were 16 lines. <gasps> like, like, you know, and, and then, you know, oh, and then two and eight followed by a four and a two. Interesting. That's fascinating. Wow. You know, I mean, he, he catches yeah. like all the shape building that yeah. Shakespeare does. You know, that's and so interesting. So he has a lot of respect, but nobody took acting seriously. I mean, I, I'd only gotten that part in the play because it was really cool. I didn't have a winter sport and my mother worked. And so another kid in our class asked if I would go to acting class with him at the Paul Robeson Center for Performing Arts in New Jersey. For those people who don't know, you know, Paul Robeson, he's going to be your introduction to what acting can be. Civil rights activist, leader, mm-hmm. legend, sportsman. And he carried the weight of race around and man, they made it as heavy as possible for him. Mm. But he was the first, like they had a big picture of him, a statue of him when you walked in and and of his face bust, I guess is the word I'm looking for. (laughs) And if that's your first idea of what an actor could be, it was like, he could be, I mean, he looked like, yeah, he looked like, well, that's a man, you know, that's a human being, you know, like, wow, that's what an actor can be. So that was pretty inspiring. And then this guy who was the artistic director of McCarter came by for an improv class. It was really one of the most probably life-changing moments that happens in the most banal ways. He was doing an improv class. And after it was over, you know, the, my friend's mom, you know, I got to ride home from them. And I was supposed to get in the car and he said, hey, 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 kid, kid, come over here. He was like, you know, you're really good. I said, oh, thanks. He's like, would you ever want to be in a play? You know, I've got a part, you know, over this thing. And I was like, yeah. And I came home and I don't remember how the, you know, it wouldn't be email or anything like that. I don't know how we found out, but my mom said I could do it if, how much school are you going to miss? And I was going to miss Wednesday matinees. Oh, yeah. I missed school. It was great. Oh, it was so great on Wednesday. But like, hey, sorry, guys. 
Audi 5000. I got to go to the theater. Got a matinee at St. Joan. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember I'd be by myself. I'd take the train to the theater by myself and I'd get a chocolate Yoohoo and some Cheetos and uh, lay in the grass in intermission. And uh, it was just heaven. And so that was like, okay, Hawk, this beats what your mom and dad are doing. Like this, I I see a path. So then I'm, I'm very curious about who we're sort of doing it for. And you obviously, I think you probably have a much more evolved sense of this than I do. But would things change for you when your mom, your dad came to see you and stuff? Does it change for you still? In the book, in Bright Ray of Darkness, you talk a lot about, in the book, it's waiting for your wife that you're separating from to come see it. And and there's a sense that you're waiting for somebody to watch you do it. Mm -hmm. And I wondered who that was or whether that relates to your life. It's very interesting. You don't, sometimes when you write things, you don't really even know what your subconscious is up to. But when I was proofing that book, I realized, God, this is so obvious. And I never even understood it. He thinks he's waiting for his wife to come to the play. Mm. And he's obsessing on it. But he's really waiting for his father to come. We have these wounds with relationships, and we think that that's the wound. And we don't realize that the reason the relationship is going badly is because there was a wound before it started. Mm. You know, you were already bleeding, mm. right? And, and so we tend to think it's this thing that happened to me today is why I'm losing my temper. Right, right, right. I'm not losing my temper because of what happened to me today. I'm losing my temper because of a lot of things. Years. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. And I feel like the 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 book kind of it, it, it does. I didn't mean for it, but one of the happy accidents of the book is that I I feel like every child in some way is performing to be noticed by their parents. Yeah. In some way. It's a driving factor. Now, if it continues to be a driving factor, even in your art, you got to grow up, you know, and you don't get into the next room until you stop doing that. There's these real driving factors. Like one is I want sexuality is one. You know, I want people to see me. I want to be noticed. I want girls to see me or boys to see me or whatever it's it's driving you. That's like part one, mom and dad. I want to be special. I'm going to paraphrase it, but one of my favorite quotes is from Paul Schofield, and I'm going to butcher it, because. but in one of his obituaries, that at the end of his life, he was acting like at a local church theater yeah. near him, and, and, they, and somebody said to him, you're still acting at such a high rate, why wouldn't you go to the West End or Broadway, or why don't you do any movies anymore? He said, I like to walk to work, you know, and the truth is, I've never really been performing for the audience, because I've been performing for my maker, and it doesn't matter who sees it. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's by the way, that's an audience. That's, that's somebody you don't audience. want to let down. That's somebody you don't want to let down. Because and no wonder, no wonder he got it right. Right. But it's a, it's a neat thing of like, well, yeah. a kid is performing so yeah. they're to be perceived as better than their brothers and sisters. That's a lame reason to perform, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it might get you out of bed in the morning, <laughs> you know, that, um, but you've got to work through that and start supporting your brothers and sisters and start going, I'm performing. All right, for my sexuality. Okay, that gets pretty tedious too, pretty quickly. You know, okay, I'm performing in service of the audience or I'm performing in service of some great fire in the middle of the universe that created all of us and is bubbling over. And 
and needs your voice. Right. 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 I think it's so. I, th- I still think it's fascinating though, and I and I agree with you. Just even hearing you speak now, I feel like I can't quite escape that trap. I told you that my mom died in January, and it's it's not just about who watches the play now. It's actually what what pleasure is, what 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 achievement is. If I were to lose my mother, I I think that would be the first that the primary hurt because I kind of believe in. Something that I can't name about. I bet your mother's here in this room right now. You know, I mean, I, but you can't talk to her. Well, maybe you can, but, but the thing that I would miss the most is those minor victories. Hey, mom, Tom Stopper told me I did a good job today. <laughs> Do you, you know, like, yeah. like, cause then, and she goes, mm, sh- he did not. <laughs> he knows your name. Yeah. I Ethan, mean, mom, this is my mother. Ethan, you are so lucky. I mean, what's but better than that? It feels so good. What's better you know? than that? Yeah. What's better than that to tell her, Tom Stopper gave you a compliment. I mean, and we all have those things that mean something. I remember once <laughs> Tom being nervous before a, uh, <laughs> before a preview. And since you well, you seem nervous because pensions coming tonight. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, okay, we all got our somebody, you, 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 you know. Pensions. That's fantastic. There's always somebody you're performing for. Oh, yeah. Or you're and, nervous about it, seeing it. And that's I so think that's good. It, it, it's, it's good. I'll tell you, the Bobby Cannavale and I used to have a, a game that we would play with each other because we did Hurley Burley for a long time. Yeah. It was a long run and we really enjoyed it and stuff. And sometimes it'd be like a Saturday matinee. We knew we were kidding because we did it so often, yeah. but it really was good. I'd sit down at the table and I'd see that Bobby was like really, you know, he's sucking back some day cool or gargling something or, you know, it was just exhausted. And I said, Hey, Bobby, did you hear what? Pacino's coming today. No kidding. Better get it up. (laughs) And then, you know, six nights later, he'd come in and say, Ethan, did you hear? Pacino. He's coming. (laughs) And it just became a constant joke between it. But it meant like, we're doing it for Seymour's fat lady, you know, for those Salinger fans. That's what you're always doing it for that fat lady in the back of the audience. (laughs) Oh, this is so good. So listen, tell me uh, about Malapar. So you're 20 years old. You've mm-hmm. had these extraordinary experiences. You're a 13-year-old, 12-year-old kid at the Macarta, just starting out. You have this amazing beginning in movies, this crazy experience that you just talked about so brilliantly, that lacerating ex- first experience. And then you've got this incredible uh, success on your hands with Dead Poets. And then, or did that come after Malapon? No, that no. came before. Right. And yeah. then you took so, a road trip, is that right? With your, yeah. With, with your Josh great Hamilton, friends? Josh Hamilton, Jonathan Mark Sherman. Yeah. yeah. And what happened? And what, why, why decide to... What happened was, was really cool. In my fear of failure, you know, I was... After Dead Poets Society, I was enrolled at NYU as, an, as a creative writing major. Hmm. But I was getting offered movie parts. And I was smoking a lot of pot and I wasn't going to class. And my brother came and was like, why are you wasting your money not going? You're paying for college and you're not going. And you're like turning down these movie roles because you're going to go to college because you're scared it's not going to work out. He's like, take the pot and do the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and it saves some money. And, and it, one of the funny things is, was I was a big Jack London fan and I had been offered White Fang. Right. Patrick is my stepbrother. And he was see, you love White Fang. Man, you love that crap. Like, what? go to Alaska. 
you're not going to class. Like this is a joke, this idea that you're running away from acting. Cause I was thinking I'm not going to be an actor, you know, even though dead poet society was blowing up. And so I went and I, so I did it. I dropped out of college. I went into Alaska for six months, did white fang. And I came back and I'm not saying by anybody else's standards, it was very much, but I was the richest person I knew. Mm. You know, I'd done two movies in a year. I probably had $46,000 in the bank or something like that. I'm I'm 18, 19 years old, right? You know, and it's my own money. And I'm living in a a East Village. I I mean, I'm eating mac and cheese. I have no response. You know, cigarettes and magazines and mac and cheese is my only expense, right? (sighs) And I'm meeting, through the success of Dead Poets Center, I'm meeting some really interesting people like Jonathan Mark Sherman, particularly who had just written this play, Women at Wallace, and he was young, and he was winning awards for this play that he'd written. And his brain was electric in, in his knowledge. And he, he just, he had college education. He'd gone to Bennington and Yale, drama and playwriting. And so I had a lot of respect for him. You know, when you're a kid, like, I just dropped out of college, and here's this other young guy, and he thought I was smart. But he actually knew who Beckett was, and who Chekhov was, and who Brecht was, and who, you know, all these things that I kind of wanted to know, but didn't. You know, I'd call him up and say, I got, a, got an audition for a Chekhov play. Tell me who he is again. You know, he go, okay, Anton Chekhov, he's a Russian, well, Russian, right? Why is he important? Well, I'll tell you, he wrote four plays. Blah, blah, blah. That's where Stanislaw, that's actually, the actor studio came from there. Wow, that's cool. I'm going to read that thing. Yes, you definitely need to read it. Read it. They, they were written in this order. You know, he would give me the, the thing. And so, and then I go to this audition and I crush it, but he, but he was a part of it. Yeah. And Josh Hamilton, and we drove cross country together on this Ginsburg Kerouac fantasy, right? But we talked about theater all the time. And I got home and I was like, let's start a theater company. My mom was so upset about dropping out of college Mm. that I felt a pressure in my brain to do something proactive. Mm. And I was like, well, college costs a lot. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to rent a theater and we're going to put on a play. And so I took what basically would have been two years of college money, and I spent it on four-week rental of a theater, uh, and we put on a play. So we started doing readings, because now we had, a, we had the theater, we had a what play? Right. You, you know, we, so we had to do readings sure. all the time. So we're meeting on Tuesday night to read this thing, Wednesday night to read this one. Hey, do you know any playwrights? Because we wanted to do new plays by young writers, uh-huh. you know? And so all the, it wasn't just for Sherm's plays? No, no, no. Sherm was uh, the, an artistic fulcrum spearhead right. but the genius of jonathan mark sherman is he is one of he's a deeply kind it was a, a generational spirit movement like it wasn't about like hey we're gonna make sherm famous it was like hey what are we doing right what's our generation who's gonna be the new steppenwolf who's gonna be the new thing and i thought well i don't want to go to college but i am willing to work and so we read through all these things because and john was very i don't know how well you know him he's a very social creature yeah and he's very supportive. So we, he was making lots of friends and he's a great reader. And so he'd read this dude's play and her play and this play. And mm. so it started out of that energy mm. of like just trying to make something happen. And then we slowly accumulated. We did it better and better for a few years until it was, we were too young and too many people were kissing and too much. <laughs> it was just, it was out of control. <laughs> but know. it sounds like a sort of paradise of young people, friends, like-minded, creative people doing something for themselves. I, I hesitate to say this because I don't like it when older people say this kind of thing. 
because it makes it sound like the rest of my life has been disappointing and it's it's been anything but but it is the high watermark really? of my happiness yeah you know because happiness comes at a greater cost now i mean i like my life more now mm. and the quality of work i'm doing i'm probably i like better you, you, you know but there is something about renting the U-Haul yeah. and getting the lumber yeah. and driving it into place and trying to unload it and getting a dumpster and striking your own set with a group of friends, yeah. with the playwright, yeah. with the people. And we got a keg of beer in there and we're, you know, rocking out to Stevie Wonder as we clean the place and your friends are coming to see it. I felt alive. And I felt like we were making art. And that was like what we talked about the first time you recite Tennessee Williams in front of an audience. There's another high that comes from like being a part of a company. Right. And I, I say, I often say to my wife, you know, my dream end game, if I could write the story of my life, like the, the end game is I just want to, I just want to run Malapart one more time. Oh, really? You know, I'd love to be, if she would do it with oh, me, so cool. you, you know, like to be like 65 yes. and spend the last 15 years or something just I'd taken over a little theater and now I would do it up filled with knowledge of the community. Like, you know, I would love to get inner city kids and new playwrights yeah. and this, that, like I would love to do it. You know, I, I, I've been meditating on what the perfect theater company should be. Like a sort of cross between what Woodward and Newman. Yeah. Yeah. What they doing. did up there at Westport in Connecticut. And kind yeah. of like uh, Lee Von Helm and his yes. rambles. Yes. You know? Yes. I want it to be more like the barn. Right. I don't want to do as much fundraising as <laughs> right. Paul and Joanne had to right. do. I'd like to have a little more rock and roll in the theater. I would love to be in a place that doesn't have to support super conventional art. You know, they, their problem is if, if you didn't do glass menagerie right. you know then the, nobody the theater wouldn't get funded so right. they had, they had it, it's so hard to run a theater company. of course but i love that that's your that's my dream, dream and going is to like to bookend it, your creative life like yeah that. and to do it and, and there's a joy you get i mean you know I, if you caught me on a different day i might say when all four kids were at home right maybe it was the ha happiest time of sure, my life sure, sure. but that all gets better with more time that Pat, like part of why I hyperbolize the Malapart days is because I don't remember how freaking stressed out I was. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like you don't. Of course. Well, but but it's, it is, we do often mostly remember the difficulty. And I love that actually that's not what's got sieved through your memory. What remains in the sieve is the joy of it. The bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. I, you know? I remember, you know, Jason Blum, who now runs Blumhouse Studios or whatever. And he's like, but Jason was our producing director. Was he? And yeah, I remember fondly taking rich people out for drinks with Jason and I trying to ask him for 10 grand or five grand or two grand and them saying no. And I was being like, oh, well, to hell with it. <laughs> you know? But I mean, we did that. Jason and I used to go to TKTS on Broadway to right. hand out flyers telling him our play was cheaper than any of this Broadway stuff and they should go see it. And Jason, of course, is the perennial con man he speaks French. And so a lot of times there'd be these French tourists and he would talk to these French people and they come and see our play. Our play is in English. They didn't understand a word of it, but they bought a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. I got to let you go. I wish so much. We haven't talked about it. I wanted I to ask you well, about the should, bridge. This is so fun. Oh my we God. We got to do this again. Should we, should Wait, we do a part two? I got to go tomorrow. 
I mean, when I, you know, I live in, I live in England now. Yeah, we just right. moved. Well, from next time we're together, okay, let's like, do a part two. I'll come, I'll fly just but, to come but, do this. Cause, cause, but can, can we just we talk for fucking hours? We could talk for fucking hours. Can I just do one more quick thing? Yeah. yeah really yeah. quick. One is you could have this incredible book, Bright Ray of Darkness, mm-hmm. that you wrote about what it feels like to be an actor, which, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, you know, Tom Stoppard objected to it, and he's he's right in some way. Yeah, and I understand I why he was so activated because, in a way that it should be impossible to do, you make the reader understand what it feels like in your skin, in your pores, to be an actor on stage. What that adrenalized state feels like, what that mixture of a thousand things at once feels like, what that flow state feels like what the rehearsals feel like, what the stage fighting feels like, what the love scenes feel like. (laughs) Incredible complication between life and art, right? It's just so brilliantly done. But look, I wanted to, and this is about, this is a podcast about theater. You could have written a, a novel about what it feels like to make a movie. It's fascinating, fascinating, interesting process. You've worked in movies your whole life. Why did you write it about the theater? Wow. Well, that's a great question. Maybe it's a natural mistrust of money, but there's something salacious and tawdry about cinema to me, particularly the way that people in the audiences relate to actors. You're very objectified. Mm. The camera is all about memory and time. It's always capturing a moment. It's immediately nostalgic. And I, I remember, I don't know her, I saw an, uh Meryl Streep interview once where she said, she said something, I'm paraphrasing, but something along the lines of people have this idea that cinema is immortal. She said, but funnily enough, if you go watch Silkwood now, it's dated. It looks like a movie of its time period. And people aren't really watching it anymore. Anyway, it's an excellent movie. You can watch it. It sustains. It's wonderful. But the idea that it's immortal mm. is not true. Mm. Movies die. They, they, can be, they can become... Uh, they go to the library yeah. if you want, but it's not alive. Right. And because theater is mortal, yeah. it doesn't pretend to be immortal. If you saw Kevin Klein. Do Falstaff, right. right? You saw it. If you saw Mark Rylance right. do Jerusalem right. at the first run at the royal court, I did. Me too. <laughs> and and you know, if you saw these certain things, you like they're benchmarks yeah. in our common humanity of the the culture of art. You know, I, I heard uh, William Hurt once talk about the first read through of Hurley Burley. It was like a crack in the universe. Uh, like something was different now. This play exists. It always is, is like the first time Hey Jude was played. Like the world it was like, it was always meant to be. It was always going to be. But one day it wasn't. And one day it was. Yeah. And the theater is so immediate and in the present. And it's so rigorous an art form that I admire it. And it felt worthy of a novel and the things that novels need. The world of literature and fiction can do things that the movies can't do, which is human sexuality. Mm. It, it was, the second you explore human sexuality on film, it, it, it just, it's very difficult for it not to be pornographic. It's very difficult right. for you not to be aware. And there's something sensual about the theater and yeah. sexuality. And there's something about the identity crisis that 
a person goes through in divorce where like who you are as a, as a male, female, either one who your whole identity breaks down. Right. And, and I knew I wanted a character to find himself, to find yourself through the redemptive power of art, put simply, right? But the theater, it's bigger. Like if I was to write a movie, a, a book about the movies, I think I would like to make it about the still photographer on set. Right. The actor in movies is so over-celebrated. Sure. Look, I say all that. To do cinema acting at the level that Jack Nicholson does, right, right, right. that's as holy and great to me as what Jack Rollins, uh, Mark Rollins does or what Denzel Washington does. To do it at the level that it can be done, that is a major art form. But I also don't think it really needs celebrating the way that like right. the life of an actor, right. like the real brass tacks, like what does it mean to get yeah. your ass on stage and yeah. look like an idiot yeah. and say, look at me, you know, oh, I mean. It's so great. This book is so great. I can't recommend it highly enough. Last, last, last thing. You've, you've done so many plays. You've dedicated, you know, your life in some ways, as well as the other avenues you found for artistic expression. You've kept, kept coming back to the theater. What do you still want from it? Desperately, I want to be in a new play. I'm so envious of opening night of the ferryman. <laughs> you know, I'm so envious of that. Like, it was so much fun <laughs> to be with Tom Stoppard in a rehearsal room and working on the play yeah. and be able to say, why does he say this line? And have the play right there and talking to you about it and have them be nervous on opening night. And, you know, it's really exciting. I long for that. I really want to act on stage with my daughter. Oh. You know, my daughter's starting to be a really good actor. Yeah. And I, you know, I have fantasies of The Tempest or, uh. you know, I mean, these are where my fantasies live. Or um, I would like to direct my son as an artist as well. And as, as he develops, like I have fantasies about like kind of completing a tutelage in the arts by directing them. We fuck around at home and stuff like that, and they've we've had conversations after everything, and like, but I'd like to work with them, and by them I also mean an extension of young people, right, right. You know, their friends. I, you, right. you know, I mean, it's not just so inbred as all that, right, right. but you know, I I see a new Steve Gerges play, and I think, why am I not in that? Come on, man, I want to. <laughs> Let me in, coach. Let me in. You know, um, I saw, you know, August Wilson the other night and I was, it's so inspiring. You know, I mean, I say I'm talking about new plays and stuff, but I also, I love classical theater. And when you're going to make the piano lesson new for people, I'd like to do that with, you know, a play that might be right for me. I love how much your motor still this thing, this funny old art form which keeps threatening to die and never quite does. It never quite does. And you know what? If anything, by robbing it, it felt I'd been working in this book for a long time and then the pandemic happened. I was like, this is the time to release this book because A, I have the time. B, where I was just missing the theater. Yeah. I was just missing it so much. Yeah. And it's so vital to what I am. This is the longest time in my life I've ever gone without doing a play. But I don't know about you, but my time has been COVID. Like, I don't, I, I'm like, wait, four years have gone by? Yeah. When did they go by? What happened? Reading this book made me miss it more than I can possibly tell you. And also made me so proud of it. 
just proud of the life yeah. of people who, who do it. It's so hard to do a good play. Right. It is so hard. See, like, I, have, I play this game with my, my daughter when she was younger. I was like, let's flip through the channels, right? And tell me when you see really bad acting. And you, you don't really. Hmm. I mean, it's okay. Some of us, you know, everything needs to, oh, okay. If we go to one play, right? Okay. Three people in it, she'll come out and be like, he sucks, she sucks. What was she doing with her hands? You, you know, it's so much harder. It's so fucking hard. When you have this cinematographer lighting you and yeah. they can cut away whenever you make that stupid, annoying face that you always make. And, and you know, and they, they play the music and they, you know, they do the dolly shot that zooms into your eyes. You've got so much help in cinema. Right. But when it's your lonely ass and your player's when you guys are up there sweating it together, trying to cast a spell, you know, it's, it's so hard when you do the Shakespeare plays now, and I'm sure you must have gone through this. Usually by the time we're doing the first preview, I am so proud of this fight sequence we're doing. It's scary shit, you know? I mean, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna really like it. And invariably you come back and some friends are going, how, how was the fight scene? Because, well, I could see he missed the thing. And God, I just made him wish it was a movie, didn't you? And you're like, no, I thought it was great. Oh. Like, and you're like, no, people stand, they want, you know, they want Iron Man to come blowing. But in that exactly perfect example is why it's so fucking hard. Because it's, it's, you are real bodies in space, unadorned in front of you. And I often think that the good plays, the very, very, very rare great ones carry all the load of all the shit ones that you've seen up till then. And it's released because we all know the hazard of it when you go and sit down in the theater. Well, because it's it, released in triumph and relief. Because when, when you go see a play, you have to give back. It, it costs right. them. You can sit in a movie and put your feet up and look at your phone or you can right. eat your popcorn, you can walk out or you can space it, you can fall asleep. But, but man, when you fall asleep in the theater, everybody knows you fall asleep right. and you didn't applaud and you missed the back break and you did the, it's embarrassing. So you've got to kind of dutifully pay attention. It's work. I feel the same way for actors. You know, have you ever had this? You go to set, you go to rehearsal. There's so many actors are poorly behaved that we carry the weight for the ones that are poorly behaved. Mm. I mean, producers and people like that, like I always tell my daughter, you got to be on time because it lets everybody know that you're not going to be like that other person that just ruined their last production. Right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Let them know you can, they can count on you. Just let them know the day one, they start to relax, and then they'll trust your creative ideas. When you come in 20 minutes late and you say, by the way, I don't like scene two. If you're there on time with your pencil yeah. and you go, hey, you know, I'm worried about scene two. Yeah, they go, yeah. what's worrying you? Yeah. It's, Automatically, you have it, a right to be taken seriously. You, you, it's just, it's so weird. Dude, I thought you were going to be the uh guest of this podcast because of how central to your whole life the theater has been and i was not disappointed you were the absolute alpha and omega guest all right there he goes off to be creative somewhere else there goes ethan hawk ladies and gentlemen oh man i could have talked to ethan for weeks I mean, as I said at the, the intro to the first part of this conversation, you know, if you need your faith reaffirmed in this sometimes wobbly and faith-testing old art form, 
He's your man. He just loves it and cares about it on such a deeply spiritual level. I find it enormously inspiring. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you for giving me your time. Thank you for speaking so brilliantly and so generously. I could not have enjoyed it more. Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Thank you to Louise Berry at Offscript. She is an executive producer. Thanks particularly to Ben Backhouse, my producer, who is just terrific. Thanks to the musicians. Thanks to Iggy Cake for writing and playing the theme tune. Thank you to Phoebe Cake for singing it. Next week's guest is the perfect demonstration to me of how our lives in the theatre are sort of inseparable from our lives. Um, I talk about this as being a podcast about theatre and life and life in the theatre, and never has all that been more meshed together than in my next guest, the wonderful, wonderful David Harewood. David is, apart from being a brilliant stage actor, he's a documentary maker. He is now a memoirist. His extraordinary book, Maybe I Don't Belong Here, is is out in bookshops now. He's a mental health advocate. He has done more to change the lives of people suffering from mental illness, particularly black men suffering from mental illness, than anybody I could possibly imagine. He has had a startling effect in his honesty about the extraordinary life he's lived and the way that theatre has accompanied it every step of the way. Talking to David was an unforgettable experience and I hope you can join me next week. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny Stage, stage, stage door Johnny Not a line rhymes with Johnny But here it is, stage door Johnny Stage, stage, stage door Johnny He sits in the balcony Seems play sad and funny That's stage, stage door Johnny Stage, stage, stage door Johnny He knows that there's no money Being stage, stage